Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you again for taking the time to share our posts on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you also for all your amazing feedback from the last few episodes. Please do keep sending that feedback to us as it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify and various others, and you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.comroypod.com. .vze.com That's www.conroypod.vze.com You can also download the episodes from there and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. This week we're taking a slight departure from our usual format as our regular features like short stories, quote of the week and song of the week are taking a brief holiday as we dedicate the entire next two shows to bringing you our exclusive interview with our latest incredible guest. I will also be recording a few more new interviews very soon, some with people who may be familiar to you, and some with others who won't be so familiar, but who also have some absolutely incredible stories to tell. Please do give those episodes a chance too, even if you may not have heard of the person telling those stories. You won't regret it. Our regular features will return again very soon. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy part one of a fantastic interview with the one and only, the legendary, Mr John Short. My guest this week is someone who has an absolutely massive amount of experience within professional wrestling. His experiences with wrestling, in fact, go all the way back to the late 1950s, if you can believe that. Over his decades in the wrestling business, he has done postering and publicity work, he's done merchandise sales, he's been a very occasional ringside manager and referee. 
but he's best known for his extensive work as an MC. He's someone that I've personally travelled the length and breadth of Britain with many, many times and worked on hundreds of shows with over the years. And despite stiff competition from a few other people, he's one of my absolute favourite people to have met and worked with during my time in wrestling. He's worked with and for pretty much everyone who's anyone over his decades in the business and me. He's been there, seen it, done it, got the t-shirt, got the t-shirt autographed, got a load of Mad Eli's badges to put on the t-shirt, and so on and so forth, with every big name in British wrestling you could possibly think of. Legendary is a term often overused in professional wrestling, but I think it's a more than apt description for this man. My guest this week is none other than the legendary Mr. John Short. John, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview and welcome to Is It Shane Ritchie? How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for the flattering and over extravagant uh, introduction. <laughs> I don't know about being there, done that and got the t-shirt. But definitely the well, autograph. Yeah, oh yeah, the autographs, yes. I was often told when I started collecting autographs and then started working, don't be a punter. Now the answer to that was, and still is, if there weren't punters, there wouldn't be shows. No, absolutely. You've got an absolutely incredible career within professional wrestling for us to get into. But I want to start by asking you about the very first time that wrestling first appeared on your radar. I know that you went to your first wrestling show as a punter way back in 1959. And I do want to talk about that show. But um, were you aware of wrestling before that time? I was because I lived in Bristol. I was at Bristol Cathedral School, which was quite close to the Colston Hall, the Bristol major venue, 2,000 seats plus. And uh, I would often go past the Colston Hall and see the wrestling posters. My interest was aroused by the fact that at school, our Latin master, it was a very upmarket school, I did go to school in spite of what some people will say, <laughs> our Latin master was nicknamed Jumping Jim Hussey after the famous Jim Hussey, who was Mark Rocco's father and was a top-line wrestler of that day. So let's get into that first show that you first attended. What can you remember about that first experience of live wrestling? Well, I managed to go because one of my friends at school had two tickets. 1,500 of the 2,000 seats at the Colston Hall were permanently booked. The other 500 would be sold on the night of one show for the next show. Okay. And bearing in mind that shows were held once a fortnight there for 10 months of the year. So my friend at school had two permanently booked tickets. On one occasion, his friend could not come with him. He asked if I'd like to go along. I went along. This was February 1959. The first contest I ever saw, bottom of the bill, six five-minute rounds, one fall, Jackie Palo versus Peter Zakas. It was dreadful. 
<laughs> and I thought, what am I doing here? But the show did improve considerably as it went along. Given that, by your own admission, that first match that you saw was absolutely dreadful, there must have been something which drew you in. What was it about wrestling that drew you in and made you come back? What were you personally a fan of within wrestling? I think it was the friendliness of the crowd, the charisma of some of the wrestlers, the characters. And in those days there were a lot of characters, some of whom I'll mention later on. People like the veteran northern wrestler Romeo Joe Critchley, who was known on occasions when somebody on the bill did not turn up to wrestle the Invisible Man <laughs> and get terrific reaction from the crowd for doing so and lose to the Invisible Man. That's a legendary story. I've heard it so often that I think it's pretty certain to be true. There were a number of other characters around at that time as well. Bronco Jack Cassidy was a very good wrestler, a very good showman, and people like Hans Stryger, who was a really, really hard case, genuinely. And then, of course, you have people like Kellett, who was, by all accounts, not a particularly nice man. I worked with him and for him when he promoted jointly with Eric Taylor, who was a lovely man and an excellent wrestler. But I never personally crossed swords with Les. I can only say he always treated me fairly. But uh, he was, of course, a character in my heart. There don't seem to be so many characters around nowadays, but that was my experience of characters, particularly. Besides that first show, where else did you go and watch wrestling? Well, at that time, I couldn't drive. I was still at school. I left school in 1960 and uh, went to work for Martin's Bank as a cashier. I was seconded to the new issues department in London for two months. And during that time, I went to a considerable number of the London halls. And also, when I was back home, I would go anywhere within reason that I could get to by either bus or train. And there were a lot of shows in those days locally. If you can remember, who were some of your favourites to watch during your days as a punter? And did you ever get to work with some of those same people when you actually started in wrestling? Uh, my favourites were people like George Kidd, uh -huh. who was World Lightweight Champion and an absolutely superb tactical wrestler, but also very entertaining. He subsequently finished up, I believe, doing a chat show on Scottish television. That's right, yeah. He was the guy that I always was impressed with. Other people who were very underrated, in my view, people like Vasilius Mantopoulos, a Greek who probably nobody's heard of nowadays, or Cliff Beaumont, who was one of, I believe, either three or five brothers. That's right, the uh, brothers from Wigan. Yeah. Uh, also known as the Bell Shores. That's it, yeah. I remember Jack as one of the other brothers. I think Arthur was the third one. Yeah. But I never got to work with any of those guys. But more recently, Johnny Saint, uh -huh. another superb tactical wrestler, my view very underrated. I have worked with him, and more of the modern day, Johnny Kidd. 
Uh-huh. Again, a tactical wrestler. From that you can tell that my interest is particularly in the skill rather than the showmanship, although they all three were great showmen. In your days of watching wrestling, in those early days, was there any kind of network of fans that you were part of at any time? Whether it be fan clubs or just groups of fans who would meet up and talk at shows? I believe there were groups of fans. There were certainly fan clubs. I never joined any of them and my association with other people was normally at the shows rather than uh, off-site, so to speak. During those days as a punter watching wrestling, did you always have aspirations to become involved in some way? No, not really. I drifted into it. I was asked if I would timekeep on a couple of occasions. Also, I occasionally helped put up rings. At that point, I didn't do very much postering, which I do quite a lot of now. But as regards that, no, not really, I don't think. I'll also slip in our first listener question here, which has been sent in by a man who you would much later work with a good amount. Alan McLean, a.k.a. Spinner McKenzie, who asks, would John have ever wanted to put on a pair of boots and try it himself? Very emphatically, no. <laughs> I did, on one occasion, go into the gym with a guy called Chris McNeil from Birmingham. Oh, yeah. And at that point, I'd already been involved in a car accident. I was not the driver, I hurry to add, and had had a metal rod put in one arm and the elbow wired together, which it still is. Therefore, I couldn't straighten that arm properly, so I couldn't break a fall. And that is as near as I've ever got to wrestling. Oh, okay. So let's now get into the story of how you moved from just watching to actually becoming involved in wrestling. I believe from us talking prior to this interview, you think that would have been sometime in the early 70s possibly around 1973. That's about right, I think. Uh, I was asked if I would stand in at a show, a small show, in a strip club in Bristol. <laughs> yes. Start as you mean to go on. Start as you mean to go on, yes. Uh, in a strip club in Bristol by somebody who I knew from his days running the Len Wilding fan club and uh, subsequently became a wrestler. I'll tell you a little story about him in just a second. He put on a show, just two bouts, in a strip club in Bristol, and there were quite a lot of shows that went on in clubs in those days. Uh-huh. And the show had been so successful that they wanted to extend it by an extra day. The MC had to go back to Manchester, and obviously John, was stuck for an MC. I was asked to stand in, which I did. We changed with the strippers, who were really nice girls, I have to say, and the strippers' comment was, well, we don't know how you can go out and do that. <laughs> and they were stripping to the nude, you know. Now, the first bout I ever MC'd was Bronco Jack Cassidy. Oh, yeah. Who was a great character, lovely man, and was around for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. He was from the Manchester area via Texas, supposedly, <laughs> anyway. And he wrestled a local guy called Gordon Kyle. I can't remember the second bout, but that was the first time I ever MC'd. 
at that point I'd already put up rings or helped to put up rings and odd things like that. John, John Anthony, that's not his real name. I won't give his real name because he's still alive and kicking and at one point owned five pubs in Bristol. I don't think he does now, but he was quite a character. He wrestled on one occasion for a Leicester promoter called Jack Taylor. Jack was a character and a half. He was himself a very good lightweight wrestler, but he was known also for putting on shows that were, shall we say, a little bit dubious, using people like Nick McManners, spelled <laughs> N-I-C-K, M-A-N-N-E-R-S. And he, on one occasion, put John on in about, he was short of a girl. So John worked in a mask with two towels shoved down the front of his vest <laughs> as a girl. I believe that has also happened previously. And John also ran a notorious show in Bristol at a cinema called The Globe, which is no longer in existence, in Lawrence Hill, which at that time was quite a rough area. It was an old-style cinema and they had flower pots along the bottom of the screen. Now John had billed everybody you could think of, anybody who was a big name, Billy Two Rivers, George Gordienko, all this type of people. Out of 12 people on the bill, 11 were substitutes <laughs> and lesser known ones. I'm not going to say they weren't as good arrestors, but they were not well known. I went along to watch. I bought my programme and saw my name on the programme as the MC. Now, I always carry my gear with me, as any so-called professional should do. But um, I looked at this, I found out who was there, I thought, there's no way I'm going to do this. I wasn't booked for it. Normally I would have done it. But no way, there's going to be trouble here. <laughs> By the interval, the flower pots had been thrown in the ring. There was a full-scale riot going on in the street outside. Punters were demanding their money back and the most insistent ones got their money back from the wages that were the only money in the building because it had been a complete sellout. When I left at the end of the evening, John, who was quite slight in build, had just been thrown down a flight of stairs by one of the wrestlers, a guy called Bearded Bill Roberts, who was quite big and was a fairground booth wrestler. So John didn't have a good evening that evening and that event made the local television news the following day, due to the riot. So, from there, how did you start to become involved more regularly and start working for more, quote, legitimate promoters? <laughs> and we, we do have to use that term loosely in wrestling, yeah, of course. Is there such a thing as a legitimate wrestling Well, this is, this is the thing. I'm sure they are. I think you've mentioned that Brian Dixon was actually the first person you worked for when you started working more regularly in wrestling. What can you remember about working for Brian in those early days? Brian was always very fair. He's probably the top promoter in the country even now. The first show I did for him, as far as I can remember, was at the Grand Cinema or Grand Theatre it may have been called the Memorial Hall at that point, in Froome. The only thing I can remember is that there was a wrestler on the bill called Jimmy Hagen, who 
claimed at least to be a former football player from Blackpool, Blackpool League side. I don't know much about football, so I can't vouch for the authenticity of that. That's okay. I don't know much about football either. I support Nottingham Forest, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that there. Jimmy was something of a comic wrestler, reasonably competent, but a bit of a comedian, you know. And his son subsequently wrestled as well, Robbie Hagen. Yeah, I remember I, Robbie Hagen. I did work with Robbie on a few occasions, but as regards comic wrestlers, the best one, people will tell you Les Kellett, but the best one in my view was a guy called Pedro the Gypsy. Now Pedro could vary his act, if I can call it an act, his performance considerably, but his best line always was, when somebody had a toehold on him, he'd shout, take the boots, take the boots, which at the time was quite funny anyway. <laughs> Another guy that I always rated as a really competent wrestler, but he could, if need be, turn on the comedy, was John Kenny. Yeah, absolutely. John was a very underrated wrestler in my view. When I interviewed Spinner McKenzie, he talked at length about John Kenny, actually, and said how he was, you know, a really good teacher and such a real jack-of-all-trades that he was so useful to a promoter, you know, because he could fulfil that wide number of different roles on a show. And also a very competent referee in more recent years as well. Do you remember how you were treated when you first started working those more legitimate shows? Were you accepted early on? I think so, yeah, because I'd been around the business as a punter and doing timekeeping, things like that, uh, for a little while. I'm not going to say I was accepted 100%, but probably 90%. If people didn't accept me, they made it not too obvious, if I can put it that way. When you first started emceeing, was there anybody there who took the time to help you at all, um, offering advice or tips, for example? Uh, not really, no. I think I picked up what I picked up from watching other MCs as a punter. There were several good MCs around. One that springs to mind was the guy that was a regular MC at the Colston Hall in Bristol for many years, a guy called Francis P. Blake. He lived above a strip club in Soho and you could always be sure that he would be in the pub across the road from the Colston Hall within five minutes of the show finishing. <laughs> Another one who was particularly friendly to me, although he didn't give me a lot of help as regards the job, was Dave Brown. Dave was an ex-light comedian, as they were called in those days, who had worked a great deal with a comic or a dame comedian who was very, very well known called Arthur Lucan, better known as Old Mother Riley. And another one of the characters in wrestling at that day in the emceeing line was George Lawson Peake. Now George did have something of a drink problem, I think, and I know on one occasion at um, Western Supermare he was actually carried out from the hall afterwards because he couldn't <laughs> walk. But the best MC in those days was a guy called John Harris, who many people will tell you was the best. I was very fortunate to go and watch John's farewell before he moved to Spain at the Fairfield Halls in Croydon. And John had called 
something in the region of 40 wrestlers to the ring in the interval to be introduced to the crowd and much to my utter amazement and I wasn't prepared for this, not pre-warned or anything, he then asked me to come into the ring as well and introduce me which is probably one of the nicest things that ever happened to me in the business. But John was a very, very good MC and the only one that's up to his standards that I know of nowadays, and I think he's probably retired more recently, is Gordon Pryor. Yeah. Very, very good MC who I was lucky enough to work with several times. We've talked about MCs a little bit. Who are some of the people you would consider some of the best referees you've worked with? Probably some of the ones I worked with for Stu Nats promotion. Mark Rowell was very, very good. To me, the good referees were the guys that did their best to put the wrestlers over it rather than themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, in my view, is what an MC should do. Mm -hmm. But um, going right back to the beginning, one of the most entertaining was a guy called Lou Marco, who was a regular referee at the Colston Hall in Bristol. He used to uh, be all over the ring, and he wasn't a young man because he was around before the war and he would jump into the ropes and hang himself in the ropes to count for a fall near the ropes, this sort of thing. It was, <laughs> it was quite spectacular to see, but I'd be very hard pushed to think of referees that stood out, apart from those that I've named. This seems like a good place to talk about this. Someone that you knew even before you got into wrestling was Roger Brown, who wrestled under the name Regency Dandy, amongst others but was probably better known for his time as a referee. Roger, of course, is sadly no longer with us, having passed away in 2013. What can you tell us about your friendship with Roger over the years and your experiences in wrestling with him, of course? Well, I knew Roger at school because he was a year older than me and he was a merchant seaman at one time and he used to tell stories when he came back of the wrestlers he'd seen on the continent, or particularly in America. Ah, oh, okay. But um, he always said, oh, I'm going to wrestle, I'm going to wrestle, you know. He wasn't a show-off, but he did say that always took his gear with him when he met refereed. So I was emceeing a show in a social club in Birmingham, and I don't remember who the promoter was. I think it was probably Ali Shan. And Roger turned up with his gear, as usual. He was scheduled to referee. Only when he got there and was in the dressing room did he find out they decided that he was going to wrestle. He didn't know he was going to wrestle. <laughs> and basically they called his bluff. So I was the MC. He was introduced as Roger Bones from Handsworth, which I gather is one of the areas in Birmingham with a very large cemetery. Yeah. He managed to get through the contest, largely because the person he was wrestling, who was a guy from Bristol, he knew. But as you mentioned in the intro, he subsequently became the Regency Dandy. By his own admission, he was a rubbish wrestler, <laughs> but the gear was very good. He had a powdered wig, he had a cane, and he had the dandy frock coat. But it was great until he actually started wrestling. And that's by his own admission, you know. <laughs> Another story about Roger, which many people will probably know, he was refereeing on television mm -hmm. 
and he's got the distinction of actually fainting during a contest. That's right, yeah. Whether this was pre-planned, I suspect it probably was, because Roger was pretty fit. I remember that one. That was in a, a match between Steve Gray and Mike Flash Jordan during the latter days of the TV run. Two very, very good wrestlers. Yeah, two fantastic wrestlers. I never worked with Mike Jordan. I certainly worked with his opponent and was uh, found him a very, very nice guy. I travelled with Roger a great deal. I always got on very, very well with Roger. I think most people did. And it was sad to see him go, you know, but yeah. it happens to the best of us. Yeah. Going back to you working for Brian Dixon, what else can you tell us about your experiences of working for Brian and all-star wrestling over the years and also your experiences of working on the Butlins camps? Uh, Brian always, to me, was very fair. I know not everybody got on with him, but he always paid me. If I'd done something wrong, he would tell me quietly and that's how it should be. If you make a mistake, you should be told quietly away from other people. That's how he treated me. Yeah. We didn't always see eye to eye, but he still employed me up to fairly recently. He did have a spell at one time when he circulated, certainly myself and I believe most of the wrestlers, saying that we should not mix with the public. Now this did not go down well with most people, because part of the attraction of wrestling has always been that the wrestlers, or the majority of them, are quite accessible. And that didn't last long. I've never had a problem with Brian. He's, as far as I'm aware, the longest running promoter in the country, so he must be doing something right. And as far as I'm aware, he is still promoting. On the Batlins camps, it was a case of you turned up, you did the job, I only did sales on the Butlins camps and also on the Haven camps. Yeah. But we stayed in the caravans at Haven, we stayed in the chalets at Butlins. As you can imagine, it could be quite a raucous evening. And I can think of one inexperienced wrestler who did decide after he'd had a few drinks to go up on stage and join the cabaret act. He was promptly sacked and, as far as I know, has never worked for Brian since. But in the main, it was a case of do the job, go up into the bar if you wished in the evening, have a bit of fun, enjoy yourselves, and repeat tomorrow. Now, during the mid-70s, you first met someone who would later become your wife, Jenny, and who was also, later on, involved in wrestling. What memories do you have of that time and, of course, of what happened later on? Well, I met Jenny through our mutual interest in speedway racing. Ah, okay. Watching, not riding, I hurry to add. <laughs> we hit it off quite well. We eventually got married. She had no interest in wrestling at that time and with my interest in wrestling, she began to develop an interest. Subsequently, she decided she wanted to wrestle herself. And she used to go to Birmingham each Sunday. She had a full-time job, a very good one actually, at Will's Tobacco Factory in Bristol. 
but she went up to Birmingham each Sunday. She drove, I didn't drive at that time, and wrestling's been very good to me, but it did cost me my marriage in the end. But uh, anyway, I rang her up from work one Friday afternoon, because she had Friday afternoons off, saying, anything you want brought home from town on my way home. No, everything's fine. See you this evening. I got back home, contents of a suitcase on the bed, suitcase gone, Jenny gone, no idea where she was, a note on the table saying don't contact my parents because they don't know where I've gone. The next time I saw her, I was emceeing a small show in Birmingham and more often than not when you're emceeing a show you don't know who's on the bill till you get there and not always then until you get into the ring. I got into the ring and into the other side of the ring gets Jenny with a mask on. That was the first time I'd seen her or had any contact with her at all since uh, she disappeared. Wow. You don't bring your private life into the dressing rooms. I think that's an unwritten rule and nothing untoward happened. But I did discover that she had been helped to move to a flat in Birmingham by one of the wrestlers from Birmingham, I won't name him because he's still around, but he was on regularly at Western Supermare that summer for Oreg Williams. I was the regular MC. He was a villain in the ring, so I could give him quite a nasty introduction, as I did, as you can imagine. Towards the end of the season, in fact, I think the last show of the season, I introduced him as a man not to be trusted with your wife. <laughs> now, I think at this point he twigged to what was happening. I was timekeeper at the side of the ring. He spent most of the contest throwing his opponent at me at the ringside. His poor opponent had no idea what was going on. Anyway, we went back up into the dressing room afterwards. At that point at Western, it was one large dressing room. He was heading for me, obviously, to have a go at me. Rollerball Rocco and one of the St. Clair brothers, I honestly can't remember which one it was now, immediately stepped in, said, Pete, you should not shit in your own backyard. If you live in a glass house, don't throw stones. And Pete quietly retired to the other side of the dressing room. Now, the next I heard of Jenny, was a letter from her two years later saying would I agree to a divorce because she wanted to remarry and I thought well we're not going to get back together again much as I should like to I'll agree to it that all happened then probably a year later I was still working at the waterworks at that time somebody came into my office and said did you know your ex-wife was in the people or the news of the world yesterday I said no they brought the cutting in. The headline, which I will always remember, is 30 Stone Ex-Wrestler Finds Husband with Barmaid. She wasn't 30 Stone when we were together. She was quite big, but she wasn't anything remotely approaching that. And it transpired that she and her husband were running a pub in London. She had gone to bed, leaving her husband having drinks with the staff. Then, to quote the newspaper cutting, she um, heard grunts and groans coming from the bar. She went down, 
caught her husband in the act with the barmaid. I won't elaborate on what the act was, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination. <laughs> she went round, she wrecked the flat, and I would emphasise there was never any violence between her and I at any time, or even suggestion of it. She left a hammer embedded in a CD player, which I thought was a waste of a CD player, <laughs> and then went off taking the family car. The newspaper quote from her husband was, well, she thought we were having it off, so we thought we might as well. <laughs> but I'd love to know what's happened to Jenny, and, well, obviously there's no prospect of us getting back together again. I've heard nothing of her since, and if anybody who hears this podcast knows what's happened or how she is, whether she's still alive even, that's Jenny, otherwise known as the Black Widow and subsequently as Big Mama. I would love to know. I'm sure I can be contacted via the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We can do that. I can pass on any so messages. I, I would like to know if she's still alive and how she is and that everything's all right for her. You know, I, I'm not a person who holds grudges or wishes to lose contact with people, yeah. even in those circumstances. No, that's quite understandable. I mean, you know, when you've spent years of your life with a person. Another little story about Jenny, and this was completely unintentional on her part. A wrestler came over here from America, billed as the American Dream, Crazy Chris Colt. Oh yeah. Chris was, to say the least of it, an extrovert. He was sacked by Dale Martins at the Albert Hall when he told Shirley Crabtree, otherwise known as Big Daddy, that he was a big, fat, useless lump. <laughs> he was immediately sacked on the spot and subsequently took a job with Brian Dixon, All-Star. Now, Brian had not seen him at the point that he signed him. Chris Colt's appearance was safety pins through his face. He'd go into the ring and stab a doll to heavy metal music. Some people were physically sick when they wrestled him. One person, I believe, was Frank Cullen, Chick Cullen. But when Brian saw him come into the ring, and he, bear in mind he'd not seen him before, I was stood next to Brian, and his mouth dropped about 12 feet, and he said, fucking hell. <laughs> but the story involving Jenny is that we were watching a show in Eovel in Somerset. I went up into the bar afterwards, Chris was on the bill, and bear in mind he couldn't wrestle if he was sober, but he would have been billed to appear at Aberdeen the following night. Nasty run. Yeah. But we were trying to explain to him. Jenny said, Haggis, you've got to try Haggis when you're over here. It's like a faggot. You like faggots, don't you? Chris <laughs> was gay. As you probably know, uh, faggot is American slang for gay. Fortunately, he didn't take exception to it. And Jenny really didn't realise what she'd said. And the whole bar dissolved into fits of laughter. But, uh, sorry, that's a sideline, but that's a Jenny story. Moving on from there, you touched upon Dale Martins there briefly. Did you ever work for Max Crabtree? I only worked for him once. That was at a carnival in Gloucester Park. I don't know if he even knew I was there, because the booking was done through a guy called Roy Harley, who is still oh, around. Yeah. Roy, who I'm still in very regular contact with, 
did wrestle himself for a while. He also was the guy that initially trained Danny Boy Collins mm -hmm. and several other very promising young wrestlers, including Steve Speed and Gary Jones, both from the Gloucester Cheltenham area. Mm -hmm. Roy booked me, and that, as far as I can recall, was the only show I ever did for Dale Martins for Crabtrees. Okay. Someone that I know you did do a fair amount of work for over the years was Oreg Williams. I had the pleasure of working for Oreg a couple of times when he was up in Scotland. And I have to say that from the limited experience I had of him, I found him to be a great guy, albeit someone who you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of. What were your experiences like of working for Oreg on those tours in Wales, Scotland and Ireland? And what did you make of Oreg as a person? I always found Oreg very fair. When we spoke on the phone, as we did quite regularly, we always used to discuss where we first met. And it was the subscription rooms at Stroud. Well, now it would probably be something like 50-odd years ago. Oreg put on some excellent shows. He always treated me very fairly. If he did the job, it was appreciated. He always got paid. At one time, in the later years, he did ask you to do a commentary on the shows, which was quite difficult. Oric was a real celebrity in Wales. His first language was Welsh. He was an extremely proud Welshman, and he was very much an after-dinner speaker in Wales. He was always heavily booked, usually speaking in Welsh. When he died, there were something like 600 people at his funeral, uh, which I was fortunate enough to be invited to attend, including an opera singer who sang in Welsh, and he had a full-page obituary in the Times, which was unheard of. The only other wrestler I'm aware of that that happened to was Big Daddy. Whilst you were working for Oreg, of course, you would have done some of the TV shows for him, uh, the, the Wrestlo shows on S4C. I did some for him, only as a timekeeper, because they were in the Welsh language, which I didn't speak. But his regular Welsh language MC, I believe a guy called Barry Johns. Barry Johns didn't want to be seen on screen with headphones on. So I was asked if I would timekeep. And it was quite interesting because Oreg was wrestling. You could hear the director's comments. Sometimes they were in Welsh, sometimes in English. But on one occasion, I do remember, I think it was in Newcastle Emlyn in mid Wales, that the director said over the earphones to the cameraman, Oreg's knackered, this will be over soon. And it was. <laughs> there was another occasion that I did timekeeping on television. This was for live TV, who were best known for having a midget bouncing weatherman. And topless darts. Yeah. Rusty Goff, I think his name was. And I was asked if I would drive up a wrestler called Jason Cross from Bristol. He lived in Cardiff, but from Bristol to uh, Blackpool, where the show was being done on the ice rink on the understanding that I would be paid the petrol and I could watch the show for nothing. So I said, fair enough, I'll do that. When I got there, 
I was asked if I would timekeep. They were recording two shows. Most of the wrestlers were, to say the least of it, not well known, although there were one or two quite well known guys from the Kent area for some reason. Anyway, I did it, and again it was quite interesting because it was done to a time. Each contest had to be over by a certain time. So a system was introduced whereby on my arm I would put two fingers when there were two minutes left, one finger when there was one minute left, I never got down to half a finger. That was the system for the referee to tell the guys to wind it up. And that did work. I was paid my petrol, but I was never paid for doing the jobs in the end. The crowds weren't very good, but they were all put one side of the ring so that the camera showed a, a big crowd. That's right, I remember that. Yeah, it, it wasn't the most successful evening, I just thought. Well, that was, I think, towards the end of their run, after the initial success of the uh, the, the big show that they ran at Crystal Palace, mm. where they taped the first lot of TV. Yeah. I know that my friend Stevie Knight has talked about this on his podcast. I believe he was on the bill. Yes, he was. He was quite involved in that promotion, mm. the UWA. Yeah, but I think those tapings in Blackpool were actually towards the end of their run where mm. things were fizzling out a little bit. I can remember one character that was up in there. I can't remember his name. Big Papa something. Big, Big Papa T. Uh, he was supposed to be from Haiti and to have been a public hangman over there. He wasn't, uh, shall we say, the best wrestler in the world. No. He had something of a character about him, and I believe he subsequently put on one or two shows at Wembley Town Hall, which uh, did not exactly use top-of-the-line wrestlers, shall we say. <laughs> During your time as an MC, you must have come across some problems at various times. Some things that might have hindered you in your professional life. I'm very flattered to hear the word professional. I do use that word in inverted commas, of course. <laughs> you know. There have been problems, obviously. The worst one, I think, probably is when you've given information at the beginning of the evening as to announcing length of contest, similar things and then they're changed without you being told. One of the worst I had of that was some years ago, I did a emceeing job for Jim and Tim Fitzmaurice. Oh were, yeah, yeah. Um, they ran at quite a few shows, they were both quite competent wrestlers themselves. I was told the first contest will be six five minute rounds, two falls. So in I went, I announced that, and one of the wrestlers comes across and says, we were told it's eight three-minute rounds. <laughs> so I correct myself, making myself look at a right prat, which isn't difficult. And then we went straight into a times contest with no rounds at all. <laughs> well, I couldn't explain it to the pundits. We just had to take it as it was. But I was never, to my knowledge, the, well, I would remember this. I was never the victim of one of the worst practical jokes that could be played. And that was, with an eight-man knockout contest, or with any knockout contest, standard procedure used to be the wrestlers would be given a number in the dressing room and then members of the audience would call out that number at the beginning of the show 
and they would step forward, say Fred Smith would step forward, another number would be called and that would be Joe Brown's number. Right, fair enough, the system worked well. Until at a small hall where the wrestlers weren't that well known, uh, the wrestlers decided that they were going to have a bit of fun. So Fred Smith's number was called and Joe Brown would step forward. Joe Brown's number was called and Fred Smith would step forward. <laughs> so God help the MC who had to try and remember who was who that night. <laughs> I was never fortunately victim of that one, but I have had problems like the odd injury, which you wouldn't expect from an MC. I'd been thrown out of a ring once. I can't remember who by I, I tried to forget that. <laughs> I've had my finger broken on one occasion, completely innocently, in all fairness, by Peter Collins. I was timekeeping at Colston Hall in Bristol, I had my hand on the wooden block that the bell was on. Pete fell out of the ring. Snap goes my finger between the wooden block and the table which it's resting on. Pete was quite upset actually and it was rather painful because it broke the nail as well. The nail fell off. But things like that do happen from time to time and you've got to put up with it. The honky-tonk man who probably is quite well known still, the American that I worked with on a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. He, when he got into the ring, insisted that I dance with him. I danced like a pregnant elephant, but he insisted and I had to do it. That's something that has subsequently been taken up by a certain Mr. Bagger, LDN promotion, who has also tried to get me to do that. His favourite trick is announcing my 95th birthday. I'm not 95, I'm not 20 years off of that and you'll be a lot nearer, but the worrying thing is that when he does it, the punters believe it. So uh, what that says about me, I don't know. <laughs> and also another character, this reflects back on the odd occasion that I refereed. This was a character called Gay Owl. Uh -huh. uh, wrestled under the name of the gay one. He was extremely extrovert, he was homosexual, and he made it very, very clear, not in a particularly unpleasant way, but he was also very effeminate. I was called to referee in a show at Ilfracombe for a guy called Scott Conway, known to many as Conman Conway, who I believe has recently returned to this country from exile in Thailand and is proposing to start promoting again, heaven help us. But anyway, I was refereeing in this show when Roger Brown, who we've also mentioned, who was down to be referee but had to wrestle as there was an absence of a wrestler. So I was referee and part of Gay Owl's performance, if I can put it that way, was to run across the ring and jump into the referee's arms. Yeah. He did that with me. I dropped him. He was not happy, particularly when I said to him afterwards, I think that cut your earning capacity by half. I don't think he quite understood what the significance of that was, which was probably quite a good thing. And also you've got to put up with the problem with the ring sometimes. I did a job some years ago in a club in Hereford for Klondike Jake, well-known promoter at the time. He couldn't get his usual ring for some reason and got a ring from a local boxing club. 
boxing rings are not built to stand people running against the ropes and bouncing off of them. No. On this occasion, the ropes broke 12 times during the course of the <laughs> evening. By the end of the fourth time, I'd run out of clean jokes that I could tell the audience. <laughs> it was um, a little bit dodgy by that point. Another occasion, uh, this was in Tewkesbury, show put on by a local window cleaner, I believe, and come the interval, a couple of the wrestlers wished to leave. They were then told, oh sorry, there's no money here, no money to pay you, because the show was a sellout, all the money had been banked. So Count Bartetti, who was one of the top wrestlers on the bill, and the guy he was working with called Strangler Lewis, decided they want their money. They were not going to go on in the second half till they'd had their money. So local police were called and the police ordered the window cleaner to go back to his house, get money to pay them. Subsequently, the interval lasted an hour and a half. <laughs> and um, I was struggling, to be honest, to pacify the, uh, the punchers, if I can put it that way. One of the other difficulties of emceeing sometimes is promotional rivalry. I emceed a show in Bognor Regis for a guy called John Coppin. John was a very nice guy, put on quite a few shows in the south of England. When I got to the show, which was at the theatre in Bognor Regis, the ring was erected just in front of the stage, which was quite normal practice in those days. And when I got there, John gave me a letter from another South Coast promoter, who should be nameless because he's still running the occasional show, saying that anybody who worked on that show, John's show, would be blacklisted and would never work for him and would never do this, that and the other, because Bognor Regis was his show. He had never run, never mind at the theatre in Bognor Regis, he'd never run in Bognor Regis and didn't live there. So John said to me, would you read out this letter, name the promoter, and say if he wants a promotional war, he can have one. I said, I'll read the letter out. I won't name the promoter. I will simply say another South Coast promoter, which is what I did. And at one point I turned round and all the wrestlers on the bill were stood on the stage behind me in solidarity. That was the end of that. But... I subsequently saw the South Coast promoter at another show about two years later when he was in the audience. And he came up to me and said, if I'd known what you were going to do, I would have sued you, either for slander or libel, I can't remember which it was now. On what grounds, I'm not quite sure, because his name was never mentioned. But funnily enough, earlier on, three or four years previously, I'd done a lot of work for him, and he'd asked me to go full-time as a ring announcer. I didn't because I had a good job at Waterworks, but I still did quite a bit of work for him. So things like that, you know, can happen and you have to tread a little bit carefully. But you had little problems like that crop up and you were also subject to a fair number of practical jokes. This seems like a good point to put in another listener question that we've got. And this question has been asked by, I think, probably our only female listener, although I could be wrong about that, uh, Justine Gassman, who would like to know what some of the best stroke, worst ribs you've seen over the years are. 
I've been subjected personally to things like having your shoes filled with foam, having rude drawings put on your uh, suitcase by usually using toothpaste of all things. That was done on one occasion by a guy I'm very friendly with now and is a good promoter and a very good wrestler and very underrated in my view, a guy called James Mason. But James in his earlier years was something of a bit of a character and he did do one or two things that perhaps were a bit out of order, which he would admit now. But the worst thing I ever personally suffered was having my hair dyed jet black. That was done by a certain Mr. Spinner McKenzie and he wouldn't allow me to get anywhere near the washroom afterwards. Subsequently I went into the ring that night with a dyed jet black forehead and hair <laughs> which um, I was rather annoyed about. But you do get these things and you have to take them as and when they happen. Within reason anyway. Well, I mean, that is something we'll get into shortly. Uh, your time working for the BWF and Spinner and the infamous, for a number of reasons, Shane Stevens. Before we get into that, though, whilst we're talking about different promoters, you are someone who may have worked for more different promoters over the years than just about anyone who were some of your favourites to work for over the years? And maybe on the other side of the coin, who were some of your least favourite people to work for and why? Well, I didn't uh, really have favourite promoters. I always tried to do my best for any of them, even if they treated me badly. Providing I was paid at the end of the day, I always did my best. There are people that owe me money now. One was the aforementioned Shaky Stevens, who I worked for for four and a half years and who left me stranded in Berwick-on-Tweed in, in the end. I had done a week's work for him in Scotland. He had gone back to his base. That week was quite interesting because one of the shows was on the Isle of Butte in Rothsey and we'd been there previously and the landlady from our previous visit turned up, along with one of the local police, saying, I've not been paid, and waving unpaid bills. Now, Shaky at this point had gone back to the mainland and was back at his home. The only guy there who was involved with the promotional side was an American who was a friend of Shaky's, and he was obviously somewhat concerned because he didn't know anything about all this. The show had been sold out and the money taken back to the mainland. The only money there was to pay the wrestlers. So to settle and avoid a court case and avoid probably everybody being kept on the Isle of Butte, the American, whose name I've forgotten, he wasn't a wrestler, had to pay the bills. Consequently, the only money he had to do it was the wrestlers' wages. And the only person that got paid that night was Skull Murphy, because everybody was somewhat frightened of Skull, to be quite honest. And consequently, I was owed money because I was one of the transport. It had been agreed that I would stay up in Scotland, because I'm a Speedway fan, and it was during the Speedway season. I would do some postering at venues in Scotland, which Shaky was going back to. 
and consequently they would pay my digs and my petrol. But as it was partly my choice to stay up there, I wouldn't be paid a wage. So that was fair enough. On the Friday, I think I was running out of cash. I'd not been paid anything. So I phoned up Shaky back at base. All oh, right, I will send you the wages by Western Union. Where are you to, uh, tomorrow? I said, Berwick on Tweed. Right, fair enough, your money will be there tomorrow morning. So I went to Berwick, did the postering work, went to collect my money, no money there. Now I was in Berwick that night because I was going to a speedway meeting there and I'd done the postering job, but as far as they were concerned, I had run out of money. I didn't have a cash card. Consequently, the banks also being a Saturday were shut. And as far as they are concerned, shaky, I was stuck stranded without money in Berwick. And I had to stay there until the banks opened on the Monday when I could get in a cash a check. Well, I'm not stupid, in spite of many stories that will tell you I am. <laughs> and I did actually have sufficient money there to cover myself. But as far as they were concerned, I had no money at all. And at the moment, I am still owed that money, and that was 20 years ago. Another story concerning a certain promoter. I was asked to poster in Devon and Cornwall. I think it was Tiverton, the Cornwall one was certainly uh, Falmouth. I was a bit reluctant to go because it was very short notice. The promoter was based in London and didn't want to go that far down. Anyway, I agreed to go down there following day from the phone call on the understanding that accommodation would be booked in Falmouth and paid for and that I would be paid my travelling expenses and that obviously I would be paid a wage. So I went down, I posted Tiverton, which wasn't a problem. I then went down to Falmouth to the address I'd been given only to find that it had been booked but not paid for. So I went along to the hall in Falmouth, this was probably about 8 o'clock at night, it was still open, to collect the posters which I'd been assured would be there. They were not there. They turned up at 1 o'clock the following day. So I spent the afternoon postering and large part of the evening went home, rang up the promoter, oh no chance you haven't done the job. I said, well, I've been down there and I've done the job, full stop. He said, well, I've had a phone call from a friend in Tiverton saying it's not been posted. I said, well, I'd like to know what I was going around doing all day that, down there. Anyway, cut a long story short, I did not get the money, the expenses or wages. And I subsequently went to a show put on by this promoter in Cheltenham, I believe, and had a go at him. So what about my money? Threatened him, and if you'd seen me, you'd know me threatening anyone, it's pretty rare. And threatened him with getting some of the heavies in. In the end, he paid me my expenses, and obviously I had the hotel bill, that was paid as well. But to this day, I've never received the wages. So you do have to be a bit careful. You yeah. do find uh, one or two people are a bit dodgy. But on the whole, I've found people are pretty honest. I've only ever had money stolen once. I was doing an MC job in Salisbury City Hall for Brian Dixon. And 
I stupidly left money in the dressing room. Fair amount of money which I proposed to bank the following day. That money disappeared. I didn't bring the police into it because I thought, well, that's not going to do any good. We put it down to possibly being a punter. But subsequently, I heard that one of the people on the bill was an American who's never been here before or since, who, to quote Doc Dean, said, I would not share a room with him, he will steal your underwear. Ever since that day, I have never left money in the dressing room. But I've had very little problem over the 40-odd years that I've emceed, and uh, you do get in the odd bad apple. Certain Mr Conway's name springs to mind. He always paid me to be fair to him, but he had a very nasty sense of humour along the lines of on one occasion I worked for him in Exeter and when I came back to the dressing room after I changed out of my emceeing gear, my dinner suit, uh, I couldn't find my civvies, my street gear. I eventually found them, hung out of the window, dressing room window in the rain and I was not pleased. Conway thought it was quite funny, but he's probably the promoter that I would be least happy to work for, although, as I say, he always paid me, to be fair to him. And he's just, as I said, I believe, returned to this country yeah. with the intention of promoting again. So, uh, be wary. While we're talking about different promoters, I do have another listener question here, this time from Mark Rowell. And he asks... What are your favourite memories of Mad Eli? Well, Mad Eli was a great, great character. For those who don't know, he was a punter. He'd been going to shows since the late 1940s. Wow. He put on a considerable number of wrestling shows as a promoter, most of them for charity. Over the years, he'd raised nearly four million pounds for charity. Uh, that's not an exaggeration, I've actually seen the paperwork. Somebody reported him to the charity commissioners because he wasn't registered as a charity. They came out to see him at his home in Bath, which was quite some place to go, believe me. Yeah. And challenged him. He said, give me a pound. They gave him a pound. He said, now, with your charities, how much of that will actually go to the charities? He said, oh, about 85p. And he said, right, with me, that all, one pound, all goes to the charities. And he showed them receipts. But he was one hell of a character. He raised money by all sorts of things, dressing up as a banana and going round bar. Sleeping rough, sponsored. Eli was a wonderful character. And if you could get him to talk about his life, which is very difficult to talk about. He was really interesting. He was brought up in an orphanage by nuns who sexually abused him. He was taught to read and write by a kitchen porter somewhere that he worked. If you took him anywhere, and I did take him to quite a few places, the one thing you had to avoid, if you weren't sure where you were going, never ask him to ask somebody the way because he would wind them up unmercifully in the <laughs> nicest possible way and in the end you wouldn't find out where you were going anyway. 
but he was a great character and he was probably one of the best to travel with. He ran coach trips to various places, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I went on a few with him, they were quite entertaining. Chaotic, but he always got there. He used to turn up with a large bundle of sandwiches for everybody. It was an interesting experience, shall we say. When my ex started wrestling, she did some small shows in a place called the Hen and Chickens. Hen and Chickens at Smethwick, yeah. Yeah. Eli used to come up sometimes. I couldn't drive, I didn't start driving until my marriage broke down. But somehow we came up with various people and Chris McNeil was a villain. So Eli, on one occasion, I always remember, he sent a present up to Chris in the ring, to be given to him in the ring. Chris starts unwrapping this, you know, and oh, what have I got here, what's he sent up? And all it was was about eight boxes getting smaller and smaller and smaller, all wrapped up. And the last one had nothing in it at all. <laughs> and of course Chris went bananas. But that was typical of Eli, you know. <laughs> His wrestling shows were always scrupulously honest. You can laugh, but it's true. <laughs> uh, if you worked for him, you were always paid in an envelope the correct amount before the show. But his main claim to fame, in my view, and the best thing he ever did, when Haystacks was very seriously ill with cancer, he put on a benefit show for Haystacks at the Pavilion in Bath. It was a very, very varied bill, and it included people like Klondike Kate and Rock and Roll Express Bob Barrett. I was honoured to be the MC, and nobody expected Stax to be there because he was in a very, very poor condition. Eli said he'd been invited, but we don't think he'll be here, obviously, because of his health. About halfway through the first bout, he walked in through the audience and the place erupted. One of the most emotional things I've ever seen. Uh, he was a shadow of his former self. He was probably 16, 17 stone compared with the 35 that he'd been in the ring. He was obviously a very, very ill man. As I say, the place erupted. As soon as that contest finished, all the wrestlers on the bill came in the ring and he was introduced to them all he stayed the entire evening and he was sat out in the box office at the Pavilion in Bath signing autographs afterwards for anybody that wanted him. I worked with him quite a number of times on tours in Scotland and Ireland and on a good day he was a lovely, lovely man. On a bad day you had to be a little bit careful. One of my first experiences of timekeeping was with him I think in Ludlow, somewhere in Shropshire anyway, and I gave him, as I always did at those days, five minute rounds were normally four and a half. I gave him four and a half minute rounds, he collared me immediately, the interval came up, said, those were long rounds. I said, no, no, four and a half minutes, they were actually short. He said, give me your watch. I gave him my watch, which he probably threw against the wall. <laughs> that was when I discovered my watch was shockproof. But whenever I worked with him afterwards, his five-minute rounds were four minutes. And, uh, <laughs> but he was a really nice man. It was always an experience touring with him, because when you stayed away, 
we would get into the hotels quite late at night. Yeah. And you would come down to breakfast in the morning. He'd come down. And the expression on the other people's faces when they saw him there were well worth the journey. You know? Yeah. He wasn't a massive eater. He was just a really big man. And although, like all of us, including me, he had his faults, he was on the whole a very, very nice man. One of the great people who sadly died just a few days ago was Dave Franklin from Yes, Bar. absolutely. Known to many on the internet, I believe, as old Dave. Mm -hmm. He was a punter, like myself, from very shortly after I started going in the early 60s. And he was known for always on the internet putting a very, very fair but honest appraisal of any shows he'd been to. Yeah. And Dave will be sadly missed. I know he was well liked by a lot of people. Unfortunately, he died from cancer earlier on this week, actually, when this interview is being done, this podcast has been done. Yeah, I mean, I, I met him on a number of occasions, and he was always a very, very nice man. I always found him extremely pleasant to talk to. He... He had a lot of good things to say about people, and he also had a great sense of humour. Mm, and you only have to look at—I know you're you're not online personally—but um, you only have to look at all the comments and tributes that people have left for him that his family have seen. Oh, that's um, good. To know, you know, how well liked he was within the wrestling community. Well, I think a lot of the people liked him because he was honest. Yeah. If a show was poor, he'd say, in his view, he would say that it was poor, but he would say why, uh, which is constructive criticism in my book, and that's uh, very valuable. I know that he was well-liked and well-known. Yeah. A sad loss. Mm. Did you ever travel and work in wrestling outside of the UK? Only show I ever did outside of the UK was in Belgium, where I time-capped. The story basically is that in the papers, Ledger Travel, who specialised in one-day trips and cheapy trips, advertised American wrestling in Belgium. So I jumped at the chance to go, naturally. Only shortly before I went did I discover that the promoter was actually a British promoter, yeah. Brian Dixon, actually. And I went on the trip, I joined the queue to buy my ticket, and I was asked when I got to the, the pay desk if I would act as timekeeper. In front of me was a guy called Owen Sterry, better known as Texas Joseph Aldi, yeah. and Joe was asked if he would second. So neither of us had to actually buy tickets, but that is the only time I've worked abroad. I've seen shows abroad in several different countries. I've actually worked in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern and Southern Ireland. Both of the Irish ones are for Oric. And I've seen shows, and I think I'm trying to get this right, Australia, Canada, uh, sorry, America, not Canada, Germany, Austria, I think there are a couple of others, but those are the ones that spring to mind at the moment. The most interesting one was probably Australia. It's all slightly different everywhere you go. Of course, back at that time, every 
place in the world had its own kind of unique wrestling style mm. and I think that's something that's lost a bit nowadays because everything's much of a muchness and everything's more of a, a hybrid now but I mean back at that time each place did have its own very unique style. I know as a young wrestling fan that was something that was very appealing to me. You know I was more interested in the technical side rather than the American showman side but yeah. I did appreciate that some of them were very very good. The American ones I saw were in I think probably 83 or 82 in the Los Angeles Olympia okay. uh, promoted by a guy called Mick LaBelle who I actually spoke to on the phone, I don't know how I got his number, before we went over there, I was still married at the time, and he arranged tickets for us for nothing, which was very pleasant, I introduced us to all the wrestlers, most of whom were Mexican, and the top of the bill was a guy called Diamond Timothy Flowers III. Wow. I know very, very <laughs> little about, but I believe he did a gay image, and he was supposed to be from... Fire Island, New York State, I believe, which apparently was well known for the gay community. That is a name I'm familiar with because, as you know, I spent a month over in Canada in 2001 working with my friend Justin Richards. Yeah. And Tim Flowers, or Timothy Flowers, wasn't working for that particular promotion that we worked for, but he was a name that was brought up reasonably often while we were there and I know he did have a long career mm. working not only in the States but in Canada as well which I believe is actually where he's legitimately from. Mm. Well, I can't remember a lot about him but I do remember it was a gay image and we apparently had missed seeing Adrian Street who had worked for that particular promoter by a couple of weeks. Well I knew him quite well since the first time I saw him was in the early 60s at Dorking, the Civic Hall in Dorking. I wasn't working, I was a punter. At that point, he had a macho man image, as you probably know, he later became the gay icon, yeah. which he wasn't very far from it. He had a very, very good physique, jet black hair, very, very nice guy. I always got on well with Adrian anyway, and also with his wife, who also was a wrestler. Yeah. Just as a little story about Adrian, at Bath Pavilion, there were two, what was not commonly known as ring rats, who were identical twins. If I can put it delicately, one of them would and one of them wouldn't. And it was Aureus Adrian who knew which one was which. <laughs> and he wasn't interested in the one that wouldn't. Yeah. But that was, I should emphasise, before we got married. It would be lovely to know how he is now. Over the years, you must have worked in hundreds or quite possibly more than a thousand different venues. Are there any places which really stand out for you, either in terms of favourite or least favourite places to work, or in terms of places which were, shall we say, completely different in some way from the norm? One that springs out as a place I wouldn't particularly wish to work again was the Labour Club in Yeovil. Okay. That was a show put on by a local guy who did some wrestling, I think called Scott Ryan. And the changing room facilities were one toilet cubicle, and that was for the <laughs> entire bill. 
that was the reason I didn't particularly want to go back there again. I don't think they ever ran another show there. Some halls had a good atmosphere. The Albert Halls at Stirling was one, but they're dotted around the country. Motherwell, I worked in Motherwell several times, and the second time I worked there, a couple of the punters in the front row asked my name, which I gave them. I had no reason not to do so. I wonder why they want to know, but they may be like me. They keep their own programme with a list of who's performing on it. Anyway, the next time I went along there, sat in the front row with large banners saying John Short 317, which meant <laughs> nothing to me. I believe that's something involving Steve Austin. Yeah. But uh, it didn't mean a thing to me, but I thought, well, they've made a bit of an effort here. That's quite <laughs> nice. Assembly Hall at Melchon, which is one I worked for, CSF, Stu Nat, who's yeah. still putting on very good shows, although not at Melchon now. That was an interesting hall because a large part of the hall was standing. Yeah. Stu was a Melchon guy and very, very well known as a local character in yeah, Melchon. Absolutely. Among many other reasons for being banned from every pub in Melchon for fighting. <laughs> but he was also a wrestler for quite a long time. Quite a decent one, actually. But Melchon was a little bit lively, to say the least of it. And yeah. Uh, I believe you've already heard on one of the podcasts about riots there. Yeah. I do remember being in the dressing room there when certain villains on the bill were more than a little nervous about going out and <laughs> the doors had to be held shut to prevent the punters getting to them. Yeah. But he ran there for quite a number of years until he fell out with the management for various reasons which we won't go into. But Stu does still run as CSF. He puts on a lot of good shows over the West Country. I, in fact, did a lot of work for him until a couple of years ago when he retired me. I do still MC, I would emphasize, for a promotion called W3L, principally in Scotland. Excellent promotion run by a guy called Mike Musso, who unfortunately, along with Bob Barrett, has created a Facebook page in my name, John Short Appreciation, which I have not as yet seen but I understand is what's politely described as an affectionate Mickey take. <laughs> I'll form my own opinion when I've seen it. <laughs> but I'm hoping that I shall see that at some point today. Yeah. As regards places I wouldn't really want to work, you take them as they come. I have done a few open air shows, not very many, and they've been okay, providing the weather's been all right. Uh, yeah, I've, I've uh, fallen afoul of uh, the weather on a few different gala day shows. Well, I've always been fairly lucky in that respect, but it's similar to working for a promoter. You know, you take it as it comes and you do the best you can and hope for the best, basically. Yeah. I don't think I've got a favourite hall. Out of Brian Dixon's three big ones that he always emphasised, the Colston Hall I've emceed, I have time kept at Hanley, the Victoria Halls, including timekeeping on the last show that Count Bartelli, the great mask guy, ever did. But I have emceed a couple of times at the Fairfield Halls in Croydon, mm -hmm. which was probably his main hall. He always used to seem to emphasise those three shows. I do have another listener question here, and this one is from a guy called Phil Jones. 
Was Phil a photographer in Wales? Yes. Yeah, I vaguely uh, remember him, yes. From the Cardiff area? Yeah. Phil asks, what are John's favourite memories from the Colston Hall in Bristol? I don't think I've got any favourite memories, actually. Uh, there's memories, many memories. When I was going there as a punter, I was sat in a gangway seat. Somebody on the other side of the gangway had a heart attack during one of the contests and simply died on the spot. So you can say he died happy whilst he was watching his wrestling. I think the memories from the Colston Hall are more of the people that were there, mainly the punters, than the wrestlers. It was a venue where it was so friendly. It was stopped in 2004 because the management, and I quote, considered it wasn't the image they wished to portray any longer. But I was asked if I would assist Mad Eli in putting on an exhibition to commemorate the wrestling at the Colston Hall. And also, much to my surprise, I had a phone call from the local newspaper, the Evening Post, asking if I would do an interview with them and agree to pose for a photograph. So it turned out that this was a three-page article on me, Kevin Malone knows why, <laughs> started off, if you want a bow tie you can always ask John Short, and also then another, I think three or four pages on the exhibition, and this resulted in a considerable number of letters to the newspaper asking why wrestling had been stopped and would it come back. I've spoken to the management there quite recently and the hall is closed at the moment for renovation and they are planning to change the name now as it was dedicated to Edward Colston, the slave trader, and that apparently is not good nowadays. Obviously slave trading wasn't, but this was 200 years ago. But anyway, it's closed at the moment and they have no plans whatsoever to bring wrestling back there. Bear in mind that they used to sell out completely. Towards the end of the 90s, you went on tour with the BWF, which was run by my recent guests on this podcast, Spinner McKenzie, and of course the infamous Shane Stevens. Those tours famously involved some very talented British wrestlers, and of course some famous visiting Americans as well, in the form of firstly Yokozuna, and then Earthquake, John Tenter. What are your memories of that time, and not only touring with that crew, but living with them as well? Well, it was always interesting. I was actually the MC on the very last show Yokozuna ever did, which was for Brian Dixon at the Olympia, which I think is now a church, in Gloucester. He was drunk when he turned up, and apparently he'd been drinking all day. He was always pleasant enough to the rest of us, although he would never pose for a group photograph. My best experience of probably with Yoko was we were talking one day on a tour and he asked about my family. I said, well, basically, I haven't got a family now. Most of them are dead. And he said, well, I suppose the wrestlers are your family now. And I looked around the dressing room and I thought, my God, I'm in this shit here. <laughs> but... Uh, he was okay. The best one I ever worked with was John Tenter, Earthquake. John was a lovely, lovely guy. We did the Scottish Islands with John. We did Orkney and we had a day there 
because of the ferry sailings, we had the Sunday there the day after the show. I was being used as transport as well as MC. And I had a little Ford Fiesta, quite a small car. And I asked the promoter if I could drive round the islands, have a look round the islands. I said, yes, you know, no problem there, you know. And John said, can I come with you? I said, of course you can. But John was a big man. And he didn't get into the car so much as put it on, as you would a jacket. <laughs> but he also was a very generous man. And on one night, on one of the islands, after the show, there wasn't a lot to do, but there was a local disco on. So we went along to the disco. And he spent the evening buying everybody in the bar, not just the wrestlers in our group, everybody in the bar drinks. Following morning, he couldn't work out why he hadn't got me money. <laughs> but he was such a nice guy, John, one of the best. There were others as well, but he particularly stands out. I did a tour with him in Scotland. We went to Ullapool, the last venue on the mainland, day after we'd actually worked in Dornoch, which is a very small place. And we were put into the hotel where Madonna had put her wedding guest as she was married in the cathedral in Dornoch. It was an absolutely superb hotel and only later did I discover that the bills weren't paid. That wasn't my problem. I paid my bill, my bar bill. Go back to Ullapool. The weather was atrocious, strong winds, and our next job was on one of the Scottish islands. I believe it was Stornoway, and I wouldn't be absolutely sure, on the Isle of Lewis. Anyway, the ferry was uncertain about sailing. It eventually decided they were going to sail, although it was a force-eight gale. And we rang up the island, said we are going to be very late. We were due in somewhere around five o'clock. We are going to be very late, but we are coming. The show will go ahead. It will start at nine o'clock instead of half past seven. So we turned up, most of us having been horribly seasick, and I believe John Tenter was one of the people involved. He, it's not nice to see a guy of his size being seasick. I was fortunate I managed to get hold of some tablets before we went, but I still was pretty queasy. Anyway, we turned up, and on the quayside were probably 100 people waiting for us because it had been put over on the local radio station that the show would go ahead, but it would be late. And we had something like 100 people helping us get the ring into the hall and erected. We went ahead, we did the show. The crowd were very appreciative that we made the effort. After the show, we were in a quandary whether we got the boat back the early hours or we wait for the boat we had originally booked, which was the following day. In the end, we decided that we would go on the late night boat. It was fortunate that we did, because there were no more boats sailed from that island for two days afterwards. So we did make it back to the mainland. We weren't in a particularly healthy state, but yeah. we did make it back. And that was uh, fairly typical of some of the things that we did with BWF. Uh, what was it like actually living together with all those wrestlers, you know, being on top of each other sort of 24 hours a day? Well, when we worked in Scotland for quite a while, they rented a house up in the woods near a town called Helensborough, right up in the woods in the middle of nowhere. 
we used to use that as a base and we'd go out, we would do the show, come back, probably didn't get back there till one or two in the morning because we were working all over Scotland. Somebody had got hold of some inflatable armchairs and an inflatable settee and they make a horrible noise when you sit <laughs> on them. But then we would stay up, we would have a drink, we would chat till probably four or five in the morning and then everybody go to bed. The promoter had managed to get hold of some bunk beds, which is not a particularly pretty sight when you have probably eight or twelve hefty wrestlers and an overweight MC uh, <laughs> sleeping in these. Then we'd get up again at perhaps midday, somebody would cook breakfast, then we'd be off again and repeat the exercise. It was interesting and obviously we had some real characters. Drew MacDonald, who was a lovely, great man and a hefty drinker. Yeah. I'm not a particularly strong drinker. I know I stayed up with him until four o'clock one morning and. Then I disappeared. They knew that I wasn't a good drinker and on one of the tours I was stupid enough to let them know it was my birthday on that particular day. We got back to the digs. We weren't at that point in the house in Helensborough and went back to the hotel and lined up on the bar were five pints of white diamond which is a particularly vicious cider. Now coming from the West Country I like cider. They were obviously determined to get me pie-eyed. After three of them, I politely thanked them, said I can make a fool of myself enough when I'm sober. Uh, I'm not <laughs> going to do it now, I went to bed. I think they were bitterly disappointed. And was it on that particular run with the BWF where they got you up doing karaoke the one night? Oh, yes, yeah. We had a guy on that tour called Andy Flyer. Lovely lad put upon by some of the others. He wasn't a drinker and he was a quiet lad. The last I heard he was a wedding photographer in Lowestoft and he used to live quite near me. But he was raked up for the karaoke and they dragged me up because I'd had a couple of drinks. I wasn't drunk but I'd had plenty. And the only thing on there that I knew was Old Man River. <laughs> I am an appalling singer, but Andy had the distinction of being even worse than me, apparently. But they never asked me to do karaoke again after that. I did do karaoke once for a promotion called Wild Promotions, <laughs> which I think you might know of. I am familiar with... I uh, thought you might be yeah. something. Uh, and that, I think, was in Dundee. It was a pub by the river. That's right. And I know I'd had one or two drinks. I wasn't drunk, but I'd had one or two. And I was obliged to make a fool of myself again by not being a very good karaoke performer. I well, never was. But. We were on a night off because we'd got two shows on that run. I think it was originally meant to be three, but something had happened to the... Oh, yes, the, they hadn't got a licence, had they? No, that was BCW. Oh, um, right. We had some stories with them as well. But, yeah, <laughs> I've told a few stories about that. Yeah. But this particular night, we'd just been to an all-you-could-eat buffet in mm -hmm. Dundee City Centre, as you say, down by the river. Yeah. Down by the River Tay. Mm -hmm. And there were actually people taking bets on who would eat the most... I deny I, it, I deny it. Well, it was actually you that eventually polished off the most. 
people were betting on me to finish off more than anybody else. But I lost a lot of people money that night. I think I ended up having about three plates worth. But I think you settled on four or five in the end. And, oh, no, um, I didn't have much on each plate. That's most of Well, that's debatable, but... Um, <laughs> Leave it at that. Yeah, after that, we went to the pub. I can't remember the name of the pub, but it was just across the road from the restaurant. And I remember being up on the karaoke stage with a few of the other lads, and we sang Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Well, I say we sang it. Um, I actually got about halfway through the song before I realised that I was actually singing all four parts. Because uh, <laughs> I, I too had had a, a few sherbets that night. And it was only when somebody punched me that I realised I was doing all four parts and wasn't actually letting anybody else have a look in. <laughs> and that was swiftly rectified. Mm. Um, Not by me, I hurry to ask. No. <laughs> Now, you mentioned going up to Stornoway on those particular tours, and you also had trips up to Orkney, Shetland, and that must have been particularly great for you as a lover, as we all know, of a certain kind of fudge. Oh, the wonderful Orkney fudge, yes. The very same. Yeah. Oh, it's a superb confection. Very, very difficult to find. If any of our listeners have found any Orkney fudge on the mainland, please let me know. It's a cross between tablet, which is now fairly common in England. Is it? Yeah, you can get it in a lot of shops now. Providing they know what it is, quite a few shops sell it. It's a cross between that and ordinary fudge. It's Uh very, very sweet. Yeah. I've always liked that since I found it on the islands, but it's a standing joke. There is a story which may already have been told about me travelling to Scotland with one or two wrestlers, a certain Mr Conroy and a certain Mr Justin Richards. And I didn't realise until that point how predictable I am and how repetitive. But halfway through the journey, there is a shout from the back seat of, Bingo! House! It turns out that these two reprobates had worked up a bingo card based on my sayings, Orkney Fudge and various other things being mentioned. And I'd mentioned all the uh, items on the bingo card, therefore there was a cry from the back of Bingo House from a certain Mr Richards. Yeah, which I still dispute by the way because uh, I'm still adamant that one of the particular items on the alleged winning line that he claimed you hadn't actually mentioned at all. But, Which uh, one was that? Do you remember? Oh, I don't, I don't remember, but... Um, I can't argue on that, because I never knew what they were. <laughs> I didn't even know about it. Well, for, I mean, from memory, there was... Um, talking about Orkney fudge, mm-hmm. talking about Mars bar fudge... Uh, men- uh, yeah, of course, that was very common at one time. Mentioning Tiffin fudge... Um, I do have interests other than fudge, honestly. <laughs> I don't live on a diet of fudge. Uh, talking about Jenny. Yeah. Uh, talking about Cynthia. Cynthia was the girl that uh, I got engaged to until mm-hmm. I found out she was engaged. Stories I've heard since we were together would indicate that she might uh, fall into the ring rat category. Uh, I'll make no comment further than that. 
I learned a lot from Cynthia, actually. Yeah, I know but that. We won't you've, go uh, into that. No, you've uh, you've told us all about that on various trips on the road. Yeah, well, I won't go too much into that. There may be ladies listening to your uh, podcast, or yeah. even children, so we'll avoid that one. Uh, there definitely aren't children listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> no, you've already disclosed much too much about your um, adventures. I've disclosed oh, much too much about a lot of things. <laughs> Yeah, there are some of us still seeking counselling from uh, some of the tales you've told us over the years, so let's leave that there. Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> just about it for another week thank you all very very much for listening and thank you also to my incredible guest John Short and you'll hear part two of John's amazing interview coming up next week if you've enjoyed this episode please do spread the good word and continue to help us grow by sharing and recommending us to others You can find all the necessary information on our website, which again is www.conroypod.vze.com. Please do keep an eye out on our social media pages for updates about upcoming episodes. So until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off and saying goodbye and thank you.